If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New Miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to Miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hello, this is Antonio of the Cultworthy Podcast, and you're listening to Sugarcoated Murder, a deliciously decadent true crime podcast about murder and muffins. Put your bib on, because your hosts Anne and Karen have whipped up some tasty tales of untimely death, and nothing makes murder go down smoother than the delectable goodies fresh from their oven. So sit back, have a drink, and make room for murder, sugar-coated murder. Bon appétit. Sugar, before we get started, I have a story to tell you. Oh, oh, yes, please do tell me. So I was um, chatting with this girl at work. Uh-huh. I never really met her, but she's a nice girl, and she's on she's on kind of on my team at work. So we were chatting. Go team. <clears throat> That's us. Go team, go. Actually, we just... I think we try to make each other laugh during the day for sanity's sake. It's That's like a, a sanity check. Yeah. yeah, we both know that we are stressed at our jobs and we have a lot on our plates. And so if we can figure out some way to make the other person chuckle. And she really made me chuckle today. <laughs> she told me a true, a real life true story. Nuh-uh. So she has a 15-year-old daughter in high school. Mm-hmm. Just, so take yourself back to 15 years old in high school. It was terrible. It was tough. Rough going. So her daughter calls her today. And says, Mom, I have a little bit of an emergency. I need you to bring me some clothes. Oh. And her mom was like, what in the world is wrong? And she said, well, I got conf- I got my days confused and I showed up to school dressed as a unicorn. Oh, no. <laughs> it turns out it's not the right day. Oh, no. <laughs> Can you imagine? No. It's like that scene from Bridget Jones' diary yes. when she shows up looking like a hoe bag yes. and everybody else has on festive Christmas yes. sweaters. Oh my God. <laughs> Can you believe that? Her mom said, her mom said, just tell them that today you identify as a unicorn. There you go. <laughs> She's like, mom, I really need for you to come and bring me some food. I mean, some food, some no, food, some, some clothes. clothes. Yeah. I thought that was so funny. I chuckled about that all day oh, long no. because just think about it. She's like, she's, 15 so she doesn't drive right so she probably got on the bus dressed yeah. as a unicorn and she's wondering why are nobody else is nobody in the spirit like what is wrong with people and then she gets to school and the audience widens and she's like oh what's happening and they were like what are you doing and yeah she said her friends got a great kick out of it huge kick and i said i just wish somebody i hope somebody snapped a 
picture of her dressed like that for the yearbook because that is something that they will talk about for a long time. Oh, yes. I said, that's going to be incorporated into whatever toast somebody gives at her wedding. Yes. So they'll say something like, we're just happy you didn't show up as a unicorn today. <laughs> so I just thought that was so funny and I wanted to tell you about it because it really made me giggle. Well, now I giggled. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of Halloween-ish because it is about a Halloween costume. Yeah. So Very funny. I know. So anyway, I just wanted to share. Thank you. Hey, oh, hi. <laughs> How's it going? Well, it's fall. Fall, y'all. We have Antonio here. We love Antonio. I we know. adore him. We, you stole that right out of my mouth. We adore his velvet voice. Oh, you are so oh, no. Oh, that's oh, my no. line. That's all my lines. Anyway, <laughs> we're talking really fast because we've been recording for the last 30 minutes and I forgot to hit record. Yeah. Because I'm an idiot. Yeah. And it's morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's okay because now we have Bailey's. Life is going to be better. This and is what happens when we try happens. to record and not drink. It's, this it is what never works out. Drink. We have to drink when yes. we record. We Can Jay say... We drink because we work. Ann and I drink because we can't function if we don't. Correct. It's better for everyone. It's just better for everybody. And it's Saturday. You shouldn't feel bad about it, you know? (laughs) Mm, That's true. So that voice right there, that velvety voice that we adore, that's Antonio. Yes. He he has two podcasts, two, and he's getting ready to launch a third one because the man has the trifecta. Yeah, he's got endless talent. Endless. And if you could see a picture of this man's studio, it will make you... Sleep with envy. It will make me weep. Weep with envy. Yeah. But um, anyway, just to recap, it's fall. It's fall. We and we've have, got Antonio. He's got a velvet voice and we adore him. Antonio, yes. you want to talk to us about yeah. your podcast? Tell us about your podcast disease. Oh, hello, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome to our world. Yeah, welcome to the chaos that is us. I love it. It makes me feel calmer now because when I think I'm chaotic, now I know what true chaos looks like. So. Right. It's these two right here. <laughs> Those two right there. Look up the dictionary, the word chaos. We got you right there. We've been yelling out chaos for the last 30 years. (laughs) Not that we're 30. Yeah. Well, like you said, my name is Antonio. I'm the host of the Cult Worthy Podcast and the Cult Worthy Classic. And the third podcast, which is yet to be revealed, you two know about it, but I'm keeping it under wraps until it's a little bit closer to go time. But yeah, my, my first show, the Cult Worthy Podcast, is dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema. We have guests on. We talk about obscure movies, cult-worthy films. And I actually had you two on there at the beginning of summer where we talked about summertime films. That was so much Where we fun. coined a new phrase when we talked about Bull Durham. And that phrase was horny baseball. Which, oh, wow. if I had what the money, I'd trademark it. <laughs> I, I mean, we got to be able to get some mileage out of this horny baseball situation. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. all I can say, so... Yeah, yeah I picked like a dull, stupid movie, and then you pull in with the Bull Durham or horny baseball, well, and it's like, what did she even talk about? Well, listen, it is it is one of my faves, and it is a favorite summertime movie. But I'm just saying, we need to start a podcast called Horny Baseball. baseball. That's a great idea. <laughs> I feel like no matter what we talk about, people will tune in. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and of course, especially with the way I describe baseball, yeah, because I'm an avid baseball fan. I watch baseball every single, and yet week. she doesn't know the language. I know or the, the language. Race. I choose not to use their language. <laughs> That's true. So yes, yeah. so when they run, points. they run across and they get to that fourth base. They scored a point. It's we got a point. <laughs> So anyway, back I to just you, have Antonio. to find a way to make it sound sensual. I'll leave that oh, to my horny baseball sister. 
That is not a problem. I'll for talk me at logistics all. and leave the dirty I part can do to her. that with or without alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> my mind's been in the gutter oh, for the goodness. last 50 years. <laughs> And what's that other one that you have? Okay, my other show is a cult-worthy classic, which classic. is about obscure films and uh, cinema made before 1970. So that's where I talk about the old movies, the movies that probably inspired the filmmakers who made the films I talk about in my first podcast. So right. that's the more distinguished one. I talk about the older films, the classics, where the cult-worthy podcasts, I'm talking about horror films, slasher films, and of course, horny baseball films. <laughs> Can't get enough of that. But I like it how it's definitely part of his brand. It's not just it's not just about film, but I really like the fact that anything before 70 is considered classic. So we're um, classics. We're classics. <laughs> we are classics. <laughs> we're not classy. No, God no. no. no, no. Classic. <laughs> That's us. This show, I don't have to talk about murder. It is it is exciting. I didn't have to do any research. All I off. had to do was bake. Yeah. And what'd you bake? Because it's fall, y'all. I picked a recipe that's got caramel and apples Gosh, and gooiness. Yes. You know it's why you did that? Because it's fall, y'all. And because apple is the OG seasonal fall food. Yeah. Pumpkin. The OG. Agreed. Pumpkin, sit down, pumpkin. Sit the freak down because I'm not yeah, a big fan of the pumpkin. Get out. Pumpkin. <laughs> Um, this is called a caramel apple pull-apart bread, which is similar to a monkey bread. I love a monkey bread. Mm-hmm. Where you use your biscuits and butter and brown sugar, cinnamon, nutmeg, apples, and little caramel bits. All the things that oh make my up God, my life. So good. And then, yeah, you do, you you take those refrigerator biscuits that have the lard in them. You, oh, know, you yeah. can see the bunch of and then you put butter on them. Yeah, because there's not enough fat. No. <laughs> And you layer these biscuits and all of the ooey gooeyness and you stand everything up on its side in a long line. And it takes about an hour and a half to cook. And in the end, we should have some kind of delightful pull apart. That we don't even have to cut with a knife. We just reach in there and grab Grab it. Grab grab an ass, but you're grabbing bread. Grab ass. (laughs) Just grab ass in that bread and get them apples and caramels right in your mouth. Yes, indeed. I cannot wait. That's some horny apple bread. And while that's baking, I'm hoping that y'all can entertain me with some stories. Well, here's the great part. Antonio, he brought a murder, you know, which we so a, appreciate. I love a guest that brings a murder. Oh, Antonio. It's like a housewarming gift, only better. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hostess gift. Hostess gift, yeah. Thanks for having me over. Here's a murder. Yes. Yeah, no wine or flowers. Perfect. That's what speaks to us. <laughs> what you got for us, Antonio? Mr. Velvet Voice. All right. So I brought you, to stay on my brand, a movie, I'm sorry, a murder about a cult movie icon. Mm. So there are lots of murders in Hollywood that either went unsolved or they left people wondering if they were actually unsolved on purpose. There was so much corruption in early day Hollywood of stars and directors who couldn't get out of contract disputes. So they either conveniently were murdered or disappeared (laughs) or whatever. It's wow. a really shady industry when you go back and look into the history of it. <laughs> well, when you talk about murder of convenience, it gets a little shady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but today I'm going to be talking about a cult movie icon named Al Adamson. Have either of you heard of this guy? No, uh, no, we don't get out much. No, no. Mm-mm. I don't know anybody named Al. Well, Al. You can call me out. You're not alone because not many people have heard of him either. Oh, good. In fact, his his death may be his biggest claim to fame. 
which is why this story is so interesting to me. So yeah. So today I'm going to regale you with the life and death of this schlock director named schlock. Al. What a great word. Regale. I like the regale. I, thought, I like that he's regaling us. Like I've not been regaled in so long. Forgot what it's it been a like. long time since I've been regaled. I know, but now I mean, regale away. Go ahead. Yeah, regale I'm, us. I'm, I'm. I'm here. I'm here to regale. Oh, I love that. So this guy, you know, he was mostly acknowledged for being a master of low-budget exploitation features for drive-in movie theaters and grindhouse theaters. So his movies were not playing in big, luxurious theaters or in cinemas across the country. It was really places where like teenagers would go to make out. Or there are some theaters in Hollywood that would just play these grindhouse movies all day long. And homeless people would just hang out there all day and watch them so they didn't have to be outside. Like these That's really didn't have cool. much of an audience. It's a really interesting genre. So can I ask a really quick question? What's a grand house? Yeah. I was just Googling like really it. <laughs> name of like a, a place you get coffee. Oh, I was thinking. It was a term a for a theater. <laughs> yeah, it was a term for a theater that usually they were old you know, traditional theaters that were converted into these movie theaters, mostly on 42nd Street in New York or in downtown Los Angeles, that would just play these low budget films all day, all night. They never cleaned or repaired their projectors. So they were known to grind through these film reels oh. and they just became grindhouses wow so it's an industry it situation term. like you just turn that Pretty much. on and go home yeah and then you come back at night when it's time to right clean up <laughs> that's pretty cool okay well, so you didn't get yeah. coffee there no i don't think anybody's no. getting coffee <laughs> no well listen dirty i think you i think you got uh there were a lot no of i think you got tetanus grindhouse <laughs> yeah <laughs> Have a shot of tetanus with a sound of syphilis with, with a, and watch a movie at the same time. Sounds like a good time to me. I don't Entertain know. me, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so this guy was kind of like meant to be in this industry. He was born in Hollywood in 1929, and he was the son of a silent film actress named Dolores Booth and an actor director named Victor Adamson. And they were kind of rebels in this whole early silent film era of Hollywood. We had big studios like Warner Brothers, MGM, things like that. But there were also these little B-movie companies who had fled New York City to come to Hollywood because back in those early days, the mob kind of owned the silent film industry. They would steal cameras. They would secure locations on rooftops and back alleys. And they wanted to own a piece of the business. And that is why... Jewish filmmakers from New York fled to Hollywood and became the epicenter of what the film industry is known today. That's so escaping interesting. Because I, I, no I never knew why, why Hollywood? Like, why? Why? Yeah. I mean, why? What's the deal? It, it just seemed so random. Well, the yeah. biggest reason, yeah, the biggest reason is because it's always sunny. So mm. before they had studios with lights, they were filming on rooftops or out in these orange groves and pastures. So, they needed natural light to film these films. So even films that were made to look like they were inside a building or inside a room, it was a facade. It was actually just built the back wall and the side wall and the rest was outside. So the sun could light the film. 
That's amazing. Oh, brilliant. Like that one brilliant. That's right. That is pretty brilliant. Yeah. So this guy, Al Adamson, he was raised in this B-movie industry of the silent film era with his parents. And as he was growing up, his dad would use him as a stuntman, as an actor, as an extra. And then finally, in the early 50s, he got his opportunity to make his own film, which was called Halfway to Hell. It was a Western. And not only did he write it and direct it and produce it, he also starred as several members of the cast. He would dress up like a Native American in one scene, hit cut, put on a cowboy outfit, jump into that next scene, be a cowboy. There are actually moments in the film where he's actually killing himself. Where oh. he is the cowboy shooting oh. the Native American, and the Native oh, wow. American is him. Oh, like, that's what, that was his he groundbreaking was career. So tired after my God, exhausting. But I mean, good on him. He was just such a broad actor. I mean, that's awesome. Wow. Right. Right. But like, he wasn't satisfied in just being a director and an actor and a stunt man. If he was going to be doing all the work anyway, he wanted all the profit and all mm. the credit. So he started his own production company in the early 1960s, and he called it Independent International Pictures, mm-hmm. which was very similar to several other names of big studios. He oh. did that on purpose so he could go to the bank and have the bank think that he was one of these more prestigious studios and give him more money for his productions. I mean, this guy is brilliant beyond I mean, his ears. He really is. He's a genius. Wow. He's a filmmaker genius. Hell. Way to go. Way to go, Al. Big fan, Al. Right? Mm-hmm. Big fan. So the thing was, you know, in the 50s and 60s, Westerns were starting to kind of die out. Like there were still the big budget ones that had vast landscapes and things like that, but he couldn't afford that. He needed to find a genre that was fast, cheap, and easy, literally, <laughs> and figuratively, like you. to make. <gasps> what? Excuse <laughs> Who me? said that? I set her up for that. You really set her up for that. I mean, you just like tossed that right over to her. And I hit it out of the park. Yeah, you did. Just play baseball. (laughs) So the the genre that was really known for that in those days was horror, gore, and sexploitation films. Mm. Great combo, if you ask me. I mean, it is like a trifecta. It's a whole meal. The whole meal. It's got a, you got a whole meal. It's a, right meal. It's a, a three course meal. It is a three course meal. It is a whole meal. Not, it's not a snack. That's not a film snack. No, it's a meal. It's big. It's a big. All one. of it. Take it all. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So, like I said, yeah, this guy was never known to waste a penny, and he was already making these films on a micro budget. But he came up with something kind of brilliant. What he would do is, let's say he would get money to make a film. How these low-margin B-movie producers made money. It was never about breaking the bank. If they broke the bank, great, but they never really did. It was all about sustainability. So you would want to make just enough money on a film to be able to pay back your banker and streamline that money into your next production. It was always about making the next production as fast as you can So the bankers never really catch up with you asking for that money back. And hopefully at the end of your run, you've got a nice chunk of change. But really, it was just about sustainability, you know, chasing the dream, so to speak. Mm, That's interesting. But I can understand that. So to be able to get the most out of his dollar, what he would do is he would make a film. And then he would release it in a very low popular market like the Midwest or somewhere in South America. 
get a little bit of money from it, and then he would take that same film, re-edit it, switch the plot around, maybe throw in some scenes from another film, change the title, and then re-release it maybe once or twice more in the same year. So in some ways, he was getting like triple profits off the same initial production. Wow. That's crazy. Wow, Al. Wow. Yeah, if we could do that. With our podcast? With our podcast. Oh, my gosh. We would be less tired. We would just be be less tired. We'd have to drink less. Oh. (laughs) You could just mix the murders up. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you think anyone's really fact-checking your murders anyway? I don't know. I don't know. But here's the thing we could do. We could steal a little of Antonio's show and a little bit of Dan's show, a little bit of Matt's show and Mm. Jay and Kay and the Wilsons and just like... Like put it in a cup and shake it and then roll the dice. Mm. And then we just, that's how we string that episode together. Yeah. That sounds very complicated. It, it is. I was thinking maybe we could just switch our murders. Like, like if I went first, I go second the next time. No, no. like, yeah. 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 So we this episode, it's me, then you. And next episode, it's you, then me, but the same murders. We're just switching the murder. <laughs> I'm going to say that, that way if somebody falls asleep. Just a little bit. Like I think mama would be really mad. <laughs> She'd be really. Oh good. no, Mama would be very. She'd be so be, confused. She'd be so like, mad at us. She'd be like, what are you girls doing? I never ever taught you to take a shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mama. So we won't do it. We won't do it. We'll keep we won't it on do the it just because Mama would know. All right, let's hear what what's going on. All right, what's so going on with Al. This is where things kind of get a little bit difficult for Al because throughout the sixties and seventies, he's getting this popularity for making these low-budget horror films. Here are some of the titles. They're pretty great. So he kicked it off with Satan's Sadists, which was his take on a Hell's Angels movie, a biker movie. Oh. Hell's Bloody Devils, Angels Wild Women, Uh Naughty Stewardesses, and then this one is my favorite, Black Samurai. Okay. Which was about a black samurai. (laughs) Wow. Well, okay. okay. I mean, okay. Did he play that black samurai? Oh, you know what? He, he, I'm surprised he didn't. He actually got a, a very popular actor back in the day who was kind of on his way out of his career. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what he was doing. Uh, you know who Ed Wood is, right? From the movie. Right. So, you know, the whole story of Ed Wood is he kind of finished off his career with Bella Lugosi, who was the tail end of his career and life. Al Adamson did the same thing. He was going out and finding these silent film actors or horror film stars from the 30s and 40s like Lon Chaney Jr. and John Carradine and just putting them in everything so we could try and sell the project with these people's names. Nice. But for them, it was like their last swan song. Right. It was their last hurrah, so to speak. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, again, Al, freaking smart. Freaking smart. Freaking smart. Agreed. And he had saved up enough money had hundreds of these films, which a lot of them were the same film, (laughs) under his belt. But something happened in the 80s. People stopped going to theaters and drive-ins to see these films because video came along. Mm -hmm. So he was able to sell a lot of these films to the video market and give himself like a nice little nest egg. So he, he stopped filmmaking around that time. He got married to a lovely former actress named Regina Carroll in 1970. And they took that money he made from his film industries and became real estate investors, buying and selling houses in these little small towns on the outskirts of California, 
because they knew that California's population would be growing. So they were buying houses in suburbs, flipping them, and he made a decent amount of money during that. Oh, nice. Way to go, Al. I mean, way to branch out. Wow. So proud of Al. So they say that things kind of changed for him in the early 90s because in 1992, his wife succumbed to cancer and he spent the last years of her life using all the money he could, whatever fortune he had on research and different experimental treatments for her. But unfortunately, she did pass away in 1992. And at that point, he became lost and directionless because he didn't really have his film career anymore. He had his whole life invested in his wife and this new company and this business. And he just didn't really know what to do with himself. So he retreated to a small town in California called Indio, which I've never been and I've only heard of because of this story. Oh, Indio. Indio. I Indio. B-I-N-D-O. Well, I had to. So it doesn't work. Oh, so it's I-N-D-O. I think it's I-N-D-I-O, not N-D-O. Like you're saying, it's not right. It's just not right. What you're doing is just not right. So just stop. So while he was there, he met a drifter. This drifter's name was Fred Fulford. He'd met him at a gas station. And it's not really sure if if this guy knew who Al was, but somehow they struck up a conversation and this guy named Fred convinced him that he could help him with his real estate business by reconstructing and repairing some of these old houses and flipping them, thus reinvigorating this real estate investment property that that Al had in, in Indio, California. And it was kind of refreshing for Al because having been lonely for this little bit after his wife passed away, here he had a friend and this guy named Fred. So for the first little bit, they were working together. They were inseparable, acting almost as best friends or brothers rather than an employer-employee dynamic. And that's where things kind of get sticky because after a while, it became apparent that Fred had grown very comfortable in his role as a friend and less Ooh. as an employee. Uh, yeah. That's what happens when, when you, you meet mix. people at the gas station. That's what happens. When you meet That's people at the gas station. Yeah. That's like the you, first rule in the book, right? Yeah. I feel like it's, it's a golden Don't rule. take them home. Don't take home the people no, from the gas don't, station. Don't, don't do that. No. At least you, you don't buy sandwiches or sushi from the gas station and you don't take home drifters. I think that's like the first rule. Yes, exactly. I agree. I agree. (laughs) But I have bought a fried chicken kind of a thing from a gas station. That's fun. Just not a sandwich or sushi. That's just silly. We've got a deep fried to get like the germs. Yeah, Yeah, the deep fried. Mm-hmm. Like those Jojo potatoes and corn dogs. I feel you you're go. safer with those. I mean, yeah. Anything fried. It's just fried the hell out of it. It's yeah, fried all the bugs you're good. out. You're good to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so friends and neighbors started noticing that uh, Fred was performing very little work and had actually been seen wearing nicer clothes, driving a nicer car. Al was kind of going back and forth between Los Angeles and Indio, leaving Fred to himself. And really nothing was getting done. So they approached Al and said, hey, you know, we think that this guy is using your credit cards. He's using whatever funds you have for his own financial needs. We're not seeing any work getting done on your properties. 
Al was kind of known, even though he was such a, a rough businessman and such a, a groundbreaking filmmaker in the sense of getting it done, putting his nose to the grindstone, he was actually very timid in real life. He didn't like confrontation with people. He didn't really feel comfortable getting in somebody's face. So after a few months went by and he saw that he was being drained by this guy, he decided to go back to Indio and have it out with Fred. Oh, no. He was uh -oh. never seen again. Oh, Al. Gosh. Al, you should have hired somebody to go talk to Fred. Yeah. 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 Exactly. He brought some backup, you know. Dang, So Al. it's a really interesting story because... The police got involved, but they had no clue as to where Fred was or where a murder weapon was or where the body was. Mm -hmm. You know, it's at first it was assumed that Al might have just left town with Fred because there was very little evidence of any kind of foul play around the house. There was no mm -hmm. blood. There was no weapon. There was no sign of struggle around the house. How the developed of the case progressed was Al had a housekeeper who knew that Al was very fond of this hot tub in a spa room. He spent most of his days hanging out in the spa room, hanging out in the hot tub. It was the, the place where he just felt the most at peace. Hmm. So one day when she was driving past the house, she saw Fred removing this hot tub from the spa room. Oh, uh -oh. no. That's weird. Al loves that hot tub. Why would Fred be getting it out of the house? So she told a few people this and they said, you know what? Maybe you should tell the police this and have them investigate. So she told the police, hey, this hot tub got removed by Fred before Fred disappeared. It was Al's favorite room. He always hung out in it. I think there might be something to this. So, of course, the police, they bring in their methane detectors and their cadaver dogs. And sure enough, something sparked them to start digging in this brand new marble tiled area where the hot tub once was oh, and no. as they were digging deeper and deeper into this recess the smell of death oh. and decay hit them oh al poor al so once adamson's body was removed from the concrete floor it was discovered that he'd been bludgeoned to death in a violent struggle and buried in the hole where his hot tub once lay, and then covered with this brand new, beautiful marble tile. I think that was Fred's FU to Al. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you like, like that gonna... hot tub so much, I'm going to bury you underneath it, and then I'm going to take the damn hot tub for myself. Exactly. Like, if you can't you even keep it. No, you can't even rest in peace under your favorite hot tub. Too many crickets. Like, that is salt in the wound. Exactly. Yeah. Mean, Fred. So it was nearly two months later, after a full-scale investigation, that agents found Fred Fulford hiding in the Coral Reef Hotel in St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, he was well, still he nice driving wow. Al's car. Yeah, <laughs> he still had all of Al's credit cards. He was still spending them. Wow, did he but have Al's them, hot you know? top in the back seat? That's what I want to know. Right, like, like, like was he like driving your car and your hot tubs in the back? <laughs> So, at the end of the day, Fulford was charged and convicted of murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. Now, this happened in 1995, so wow. he could potentially be out. I haven't really looked into that, but you it need was to a tell macabre us he is. end. Yeah. Does anyone know where Fred Fulford is? 
Yeah, can you look that up, Sugar? Oh, God, I'm on scared. it. He might be living right here in South Kakalaki. He moved in across the way. He might have. Is there a new hot tub somewhere that we need to know about? <laughs> Fred or an Fold, old hot tub? Fulford, F O L F U L F O R D. F U. F U. I heard him. I heard him say F U. I'm ignoring it. Antonio said F U. So while you're looking that up. Sorry. Okay. What you got? While you're looking that up, up, how this kind of ends, it's it's there's an interesting twist to this. So while they were going through all of Al's personal belongings, they found piles and piles of unproduced scripts and (gasps) stories and material for shows that never got produced. And in this stack, they found a script for a TV show that foreshadowed. Al's demise. It was a story of a wealthy man who was killed by an employee of his and buried under the foundation of his house after a financial altercation. So he, so, he predicted his own death. We don't wow. know, we know if he predicted it or if maybe Fred, who was just doing nothing but hanging out in the house, maybe, maybe read some of these scripts and he was like, hey, you know what? This is not a bad idea. If I ever have to take this guy out, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, I don't like that, Fred. I don't like him. Well, he's still in jail. Oh, good. That's yeah, good he came up for parole. For he's, he's been denied parole three times. He comes up again in 2024. Oh, maybe yeah. he should go. Where Two is he? Years. He's at a um, California health care facility. I beg your pardon. Type jail. It doesn't sound like prison. I think... <laughs> I think it is a prison for the elderly. Okay. Yeah, the guy would probably be old by now. Yeah, he's in his 70s. Okay, we should go see him. Late 70s. And let him know we don't like what he did. I think it's a waste of time, to be honest with you. Oh, I'm going. Book my ticket right now. I'm going. We'll go next week when the hurricane's here. That would be a great time to go when the hurricane's here. Yeah. Yeah. I think they should send them all of Al's movies and make him watch them on read. Every single. Oh, what a great idea. Yes, I think that it should loop in his cell and i think they should wallpaper the walls with all those scripts yeah and the hot tub and make him sleep in that damn hot tub yeah that's where you're sleeping you're not getting a bed you get a hot tub you get the hot tub out fred exactly yeah we don't like fred you're a bad bad man fred he's just a bad man fred he was he was really mean super mean to al and al was brilliant that's i know al knows what other potential al would have had had lost the love of his life and then he went off the rails a little bit when he befriended somebody from a gas station. Listen, sometimes you're just so lonely. You'll take anybody, I know. even if it's a guy at a gas station. I understand that, but we need to start a movement to let's get people to not do that. No, I'll be your friend. Yeah, go to the YMCA and make a friend there. Oh, okay. Yeah, but don't go to the gas station. Yeah. Don't no. go to the gas station. Go to the gas no, station. That's, that's where just... you get a Coke and some chips. But not a friend. Yeah, not a friend. <laughs> I'm saying be nice to everybody at the gas station. Oh, God, yeah, because you don't know nice. who's going to try and, you know, kill you. But me. I'm just saying don't take them home with you. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. So that was a crazy, crazy story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, Antonio. Yeah, I'm still now, glad you liked it. Well, we loved it. And you know yeah. where Fred is. So I mean, he's closer to California than we are. Well, you're closer to California than we I'm are. I'm closer. Though. Yeah. So you you, you might have to go throw baloney at him. I N D I O I N D I O and India was its name. <laughs> so. All right. Well, I still have like seven minutes for my bread to cook, and then it's got to cool 
If you yeah, want something very quick, I could probably fit in one more. Yeah, story. I do. I can do it. And I'm just going to tell you, story is crazy. In a world with so many movies to choose from, one hero will rise. The Movie Wire Podcast with host Justin Hansen. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. The first thing I want to do is I want to tell y'all a story that you're going to think is is not connected to this story, but it is connected to this story. But you can't find out why it's connected until the end of the story. All right. It's a little bit complicated. So put your smarticles hat on. Okay. I'll do it. Take your dumb hat off and put your smart hat on. You know what? Shut your mouth with (laughs) a dumb hat. (laughs) That's a big F you. Okay. Did you hear that, mama? She was mean. Uncalled for. I'm sorry, mama. I didn't mean to be mean spirited. There you go. Here we go. Ready? Okay. So last night, my daughter and I went to a medium reading and a breathwork class afterwards. And at the medium reading and the breathwork, that's where the medium reads different people in the room. My daughter and I did not get read. We were okay with that. Right. We enjoy listening to other people's stuff. And then afterwards, we had this breathwork class. And then at the end of the night, it was like a little after nine. We were a little hungies. And so we went to, uh, we ended up at this place in North Charleston that is like an Irish pub. And because, you know, we know bars and bar foods are available probably till midnight. They're good for a good nuggy, a late night nuggy. We had more than just a late night nuggy. I'm just going to tell you. I have no doubt. So, um, but after we ate, so we talked about, you know, what we had experienced. And after we ate, we were walking to the car and I mentioned her that I was in a world hurt because I had not found a murder yet for this for today <laughs> and usually it takes me three days to research murder. exactly so as we're walking past this bar that was two doors down from the restaurant she casually mentioned that there had she had seen on netflix a show about confessions oh, and right. she said they actually cover a murder that happened right here at this bar called the mill no way and i was like get out of here so i got up this morning and i was like okay here's the deal I'm going to um, research this murder. There wasn't a lot on the murder, but that's the murder I'm covering. That's good because we don't have a lot of time. Okay. So here we go. I am going to talk to you about Teresa Ann Halt. Halt, Halt, H-U-G-H-T. Okay. Would that be Halt? Sure. Okay. She was born June 22nd, 1960 in Farmville, Virginia. Really? Yeah. We know where that is. We do. So- She actually was living in North Charleston in 1997. She was the bar manager of this mill tavern, mill in tavern. Mm -hmm. And it was in North Charleston, which the area that it's in now, it's a little bit up and coming. Right, right. And it's really cute. Back then. Not so much. A little bit of a seedy part of town. Right. On March 13th, 1997, a 911 call comes out for a fire at the mill tavern. Mill Inn Tavern, which is a bar, like I said, in North Charleston, in an area now known as Park Circle. Once the fire was extinguished, the body was discovered in the bar. A body, not the a body, was discovered in the bar. Oh, no. And, of course, it was 
very burned. Oh, no. It was the body of Teresa Haught. I'm sorry, Teresa. Yes. Like I said, she was the manager of the bar and she was known to occasionally sleep at the bar after a late night closing. Oh, wow. Yeah. She would just lock the doors and go to sleep, I guess, in a booth. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, I could see Maybe that. she kept a cot in the back. I don't know Maybe. what she did. Yeah. Next to her body was a broken wine carafe. Oh. She had been struck in the head with it. Oh. And also there was a hair in her hand. Oh. And there was a watch on the floor near her body. And there was a bloody dollar bill that was in her pants pocket. A bloody dollar bill in her pants pocket? Yeah, isn't that weird? That is weird. So, but for a bar, when you think about it, it's not a lot of concrete evidence because think about how many people are in and out of a bar just in a night. Right. You know, and true. as much as we like to think we don't, we leave our DNA everywhere. Oh, yeah. We just spread we just, it on like confetti. Yeah. Like it's, it's just a sprinkle spray, of yeah, DNA. Yeah, everybody, here. everywhere. You got and it. And you just move and your DNA shakes off like a, like a, oh, let's tree don't think July. about it. Let's just don't think about okay. it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, just skip the whole page. What did I do? Okay. So, as the fire investigation was going on at the crime scene, a man arrives at the scene and he tells the fire chief that. The car parked out front uh-huh. was his girlfriend's. Oh, no. And his girlfriend is Teresa. And so the fire investigator breaks the news to him that Teresa has burned in the fire and it looks like it was murder. Oh. And he interviewed this guy. His name is Wesley Myers. He interviewed him at the scene just to get some information. Like right. Blah, blah, blah. Why would she be here? You know, overnight yeah, yeah. why? What's the deal? So he, he explained that. Teresa often slept at the bar and he was on his way to work. It was like seven ish. He was on the way, his way to work. And he was stopping by to check on her mm-hmm. because that was what he did a lot. He would just drop by the bar and her, if her car was there, he would like not, not knock, knock and check on her, make sure she was okay. And tell her good morning. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go check the bread, but you keep going. Oh, you, hold, on, hold on to your horses. Well, my horses yeah, I'm all ears over here. So thank you. <laughs> all right. So. Wesley left and went home and called a bunch of his friends. He was quite upset. He was crying. Later on, after one of his friends got off work, he went and got him and they went out. They wanted to go just talk somewhere in private. So they actually went out on a friend's boat and sat and talked and they drank and they talked and he reminisced about Teresa. He had a picture of Teresa that he was carrying around with him. He was just very distraught. It got really late and he didn't want to go home. So this guy took him to the only bar close to them at the time, which happened to be open in the wee hours of the morning, which was a strip club. So Wesley and his friends sat in a booth away from the dancers and they continued to talk and to drink. But um, he said, I was really worried about how distraught he was. So then Wesley's told the friend, I want to go. I want to spend the night at Teresa's house. He had a key to her house. So he wanted to go and spend the night there because he just was so distraught. He wanted to be close to where she lived, you know, to her stuff. So this friend got really, really concerned. And so they left the bar and he took him over to Teresa's. But the the guy said, I didn't, I didn't want to leave because I was so afraid he was going to commit suicide. That's how distraught he was. So Uh Wesley, yeah, (laughs) sorry. Wesley slept in Teresa's room. And Wesley, yeah, sorry. Wesley slept in Teresa's room and the friend, this is how concerned he was. He actually slept on one of the stairs close to the, because Teresa's room was upstairs. He slept on one of the stairs, on one of the steps in front of the door. So if Wesley got up during the middle of the night, he would have to step over him and this guy would wake up 
because he didn't want Wesley to leave without him knowing where he was going. Because that's how much he thought his friend was going to do something bad to himself. So the next morning, Wesley went home and his dad told him that the police had been calling and they needed him down at the station. So Wesley just drove straight to the station and they asked him at the station, would he take a lie detector test? And he said, sure, I'll take a test. I'll do whatever I need to do. They interviewed him first. And they, the first question was, how much alcohol have you had over the past 24 hours? And he said, I had a case of Budweiser probably over the last 24 hours. And they said, how much is a case? And he said, 24 cans. I would be knee walking. But this was over the course of the day. And this was a guy who, you know, drank, he habitually drank. So it's not like he had no resistance like me. The detective asked him several times if he had killed Teresa. And Wesley, every single time, adamantly said no over and over and over. And then the detective said, why wouldn't you kill her? What? Why wouldn't you kill her? Isn't that a, a weird, weird question? question? <laughs> and Wesley said, because I love her. I would, and I'm not the kind of guy that would commit a crime like that, but I love Teresa. Then the cop said, it's okay to beat women if you're in a rage. What? The cop said it. What? The cop said, I've even pushed my pregnant wife down twice when we were in an argument. And it's fine. It just happens. He must be one of the men that goes to the courthouse steps on Sundays. On Sunday, and wife, wife. It's yeah. legal in the state. So he said, it's just one of those things that happens. It's okay if that's what happened between you and Teresa. And again, Wesley's like, dude, dude, first of all, I never hit Teresa. <laughs> and second of all, you shouldn't hit people. I'd be saying, did you kill her? I'd be like, is anybody here? <laughs> yes. like, What's happening? Yes. So then the cop says, do you think there's any evidence at the scene that we have found that would belong to you? And Wesley said, no, because I wasn't there. And he said, well, when was the last time you talked to, to Teresa? And he explained that his son, who he had a son, he had been married before. And his wife, when their son was three months old, was diagnosed with terminal cancer and three months later died. Oh, so God. he raised this son by himself, but he lived with, that's why he lived with his parents. Mm -hmm. So he said he had picked his son up at, from school at quarter of four and they went home and they called Teresa and they both talked to Teresa at four o'clock that afternoon. But he did not go out that night. His hair shouldn't be found at the scene. Nothing should be found. Right. So the detective said, well, there was a hair in her hand. Was it yours? And he was <laughs> like, no, again, wasn't, wasn't there. there. Wouldn't kill her. Love her. But I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help you figure it out. And the cop said, well, what if we, what if we found out it was your hair? He what? said, I would freak out. Yeah. I would freak out. The detective asked Wesley, do you think that the hair found in her in her hand would be the murderer's hair? Well, who knows that? What and Wesley was talk? like, I guess. But what is the matter? What is his name? <laughs> this detective? Yeah. I shall I shall not release it. I shan't. Oh my I God. Shan't. Is he still employed? I, I don't probably. He probably oh, is yeah, retired yeah. by now, but yes. I'm going to employed. Jail. I know. So <laughs> police said to Wesley at that point. And now, granted, it's been hours. He's been here hours. Right. And they said, you know what? You're not fit to take a lie detector test. Okay. Not today. You're going to need to go home and sleep. You're too tired. Okay. And Wesley was like, I mean, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. So they said, yeah, yeah, we'll pick you up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just want to tell you that this whole interview was filmed. Okay. 
through what they call a tissue box camera. Oh. Okay. Sitting on the table in the interrogation room and it's black and white and it's very grainy, right. but they, it picked up all of the audio. Okay. All right. Just want to let you know. It's weird though that they secretly filmed it. It doesn't make any sense to me. You would think that they would have to let you know that you're being filmed. Well, yeah. I mean, I just don't understand the point. They're questioning him. He knows he's being questioned. Why not film it? I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I can't. Okay. So Saturday morning comes and the police officer picks him up and they go to breakfast. They went to breakfast? They went to breakfast. Well, you got to eat breakfast. It's the most important part of the day. Okay. I don't eat breakfast till noon, but still it's important. They go to the back to the interrogation room and there are a table full of detectives sitting around talking about all the evidence that has been found and the details that they know about the case and where the investigation is going. So Wesley sits down with them and he's thinking, I'm part of this group. Like I'm part of, we're trying to figure it out. And he's listening to all the evidence that was found and everything. I mean, it's only been a day, so it's not like they could have gotten any DNA evidence back. Right. Thank you. He's there. He's like, he's, he's there to pass the polygraph and to help solve the case. Mm -hmm. That's where he is in his brain. But before the polygraph started, the detectives start talking about the hair that was found right. and how God had put it there to help solve the case because whoever belonged to the hair was surely Teresa's killer. Yeah, I, I'm still a little confused about the hair, but let's keep, let's let's keep, keep going. going. So just so you know, there is no recording of him being at the station on Saturday. Of course not. No, mm. no audio and no video of this whole exchange that's happening. At one point in the investigation, in the interrogation process, the detective actually leaves. He gets a phone call and he leaves and he comes back. He comes back and says, well, the worst has happened. The hair was a perfect match to you, Wesley. I just don't believe it. And the detective said, I can even pinpoint which part of your head it came from. I don't believe That's how that either. perfect a match it is. Well, Wesley completely freaked out. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Completely freaked out. And police told Wesley that he must have passed out that night, driven in his passed out state to the bar, had a confrontation with <laughs> Teresa, killed her. Wait, wait, he drove passed out? He drove passed out, killed her, lit the place on fire, and left, mm -hmm. and then went home. And that's why he doesn't recall. But it had to have happened because his hair was in Teresa's hand. It's there. Like, how can you explain this? And I still don't know how a hair survived a fire. I got no idea on that. Like how it, it was a fire. It was, she was a fire. She badly. was burned. Like I, how is there I, I accidentally her saw hand? her pictures and she was burned, but there's this pristine hair sitting yeah. in her fingers. That is not, there's something very bad Isn't about that this. Weird? <laughs> it's very so, bad. It's been hours, right? It's been hours. He's been in here with these detectives that are hounding him about this hair, hounding him. And he's with three detectives and it's just Wesley in this room. They said, you not only have you killed this woman, but you need to apologize. You need to apologize for killing your girlfriend. And he was like, I, I do. And they said, yeah, um, they, and then they said, and we now have an eyewitness that puts you at the bar that night. All of a sudden on a Saturday, they have an eyewitness, but well, they haven't left the room except to take a call about the hair. They said that they had also found a bloody print in his trunk and his bloody print was on the dollar bill in her pants pocket. How could he, how could he say he wasn't there? 
he needed to confess. They actually put down crime scene pictures of her burned body in front of him. Lord have mercy. And they were so gory. And you could see her face was bloody. Oh, my and Lord. She, both of her eyes were black and swollen. Stop it. beaten to a pulp. For and heaven's burned. sake. And it really upset him seeing his girlfriend like that. It upsets me. So he was very shaken up. So he's looking and he's like, okay, well, he finally said, they said, you did that to her. You did that to your, the love of your life. Like, what were you thinking? You need to confess. And, and so they said, maybe you, maybe you don't remember doing it. Maybe you don't think you did it, but we have proof that you did it. Yeah. Exhausted. Wesley said, I guess I did it then. Oh no. (gasps) I must've done it. Oh, said, no. I, I don't know why I would do that. I love her. Then they said, okay, well, we're going to bring Teresa's mom to the station because you need to apologize to her. What is happening right now? I, I, I am verklempt about the actions of this police department. Verklempt. I don't even know if that's a word, but it, it is. is now. They bring her to the station and he apologized. He said, I'm, I'm sorry I killed your daughter. I don't know why I did it. I love her, but I guess I did it. She's like, I accept your apology. And I'm really pissed that you were killing my daughter and left. Okay. So while he was with Teresa's mom, Dixie, I love that name. That's a nice name. Police were typing out his confession for him, which is really nice of them, right? Yeah. Like they typed it out for him and everything. He didn't even have to write it himself. (laughs) And then they read him his confession and told him to sign it. I actually have the the confession that I'm just going to read. It's very short. So don't panic anybody. But this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. His confession says on March 13th, 1997, about two o'clock or so, I drove to the mill Inn to check on my girlfriend, Teresa. I parked my truck beside her Mercury parked in the front. I went to the front and knocked the front door and knocked. Teresa came to the door five to 10 minutes later. It's not uncommon for me to go by and check on her at closing time. There was no one in in there. I don't think there was. While I was in the bar, I found a pink note on the bar. It was a note signed by Alan White. I think it said that I'll see you later and was signed by him. So I thought there was something going on. I had seen Alan pinch her and kiss her on the lips before. I asked her about the note. She said it was none of my business. And she pushed me by the chin and chest very hard. I told her to stop (laughs) pushing me and she hit me in the chest with her fist and pushed me up against the bar. And I told her, don't hit me. And she grabbed a a glass wine carafe, which they spelled it craft. Oh gosh. Yeah. And she told me to get away and I grabbed the carafe from her. And then she pushed me in the face. I struck her in the center of the head with the wine carafe. Both of us went down to the floor like a blur. I lost control. I went around the corner of the counter to, of the bar. I believe I held her for a while on the floor before I went to the counter. I think I struck her twice. I was raged, upset, real mad. I couldn't believe she, what she was saying. She called me a fool. I grabbed the closed on Sunday sign and some papers and anything around me. And I lit it with a lighter. I remember I wanted to die. I wanted to burn up with her. So I sat there and closed my eyes, but the fire got really hot. So I went out the back door. I went around to the front, got my truck. I put a purse behind my seat of the truck. I don't remember what I did with the purse. I drove home. I forgot to mention that I opened the cabinet door, the bar, the cabinet behind the bar, looking for something to burn. Did Al White write the confession? Like, Hello. How crazy is that? That sounds like the person that did it wrote the confession. I don't know who Alan White is. I don't either. But hey, can we say lawyer up, Wesley? Lawyer yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Listen, this guy 
thought I he know. was going to help solve. He was so And this back in 97 before yeah. we knew. Yeah. To well, lawyer up fast. I know. We know now. But a lot of people don't know. Ugh. So anyway, he writes the confession or he signs the confession. Okay. Wesley signs it and he is convinced that he has killed his girlfriend. He is so upset. So then they say, Hey, Wesley, the news media is out on the back of the station. And we think you need to go apologize to the world for what you've done. What is happening? So they handcuff him and they march him outside to the waiting media. Well, there was a news reporter that was interviewed on that. I saw on the confession show. And she was one of the people that had been called. She had been called that morning and the police told her, we know who the murderer is. We're going to arrest him and he's going to want to make a statement. So you're going to want to be there. Wow. So she went thinking, I'm going to get an exclusive. And she gets there and it's a media circus. They've called everybody. Everybody. What is happening? What is happening right now? So they march him out to the steps and he just stands there. And I mean, there's lights flashing in his face. There are people with microphones just waiting and he doesn't know what to say. So this reporter just says, do you have any remorse for what you did? And he starts out and says, not answering her question, he said, I want to apologize to the family of Teresa Hawt. I've committed a crime that I cannot take back. Oh, Wesley. Wow. They asked him some specifics, like how many times did you hit her? And he said, I'm I'm not sure. And they asked him other specifics. And he said, I don't really recall. So he doesn't know any of the details. He just knows he did it. Right. And he confessed on live television. Oh, was buddy. The scoop of the century at that point in this area. And he, all he said was, I can't take it back. And I don't know why I did it because I love her very much. Right. Bless his heart. So another suspect was initially arrested. He had tried to force his way into the mill that night, but he had been told he couldn't come back because he had been very aggressive with some of the female bartenders and with Teresa. And so she told him he couldn't come back. So the bouncers wouldn't let him in and he was trying to force his way into the bar. And he was like really acting weird. He actually got in and he was like acting weird around the way the bartenders and all that stuff. So he was originally arrested and they did take his blood for DNA, but they never processed it. Once Wesley confessed, no need for that blood. That blood was destroyed. This is killing me. He goes to trial. He is found guilty. He is found guilty. But by the way, the hair, they never did DNA on it. Of course they did. They just did a microscope match under the microscope. So it was similar to the hair was found was similar to his hair, (sighs) but it was just a microscopic match. It could be, you could match a million people with that. Of course. The DNA was never done and it was, and the hair was lost. Of course it was. The hair was lost. Of course it was. Yes. So the only concrete tie to with him to this murder was his confession. And they said in court, he's confessed three times. Oh, for God's sake. Right. Because he confessed in the interrogation room. Then he apologized to Dixie. Then he confessed in front of the whole world. So many crickets. He is found guilty and he is sentenced to 30 years. <sighs> 16 years go by, probably less. And there's an, the, the family finds this attorney that works for like the defense fund. Oh, right. Right. So he starts looking at this and his old defense attorney, mm-hmm. they start looking at it together. And I mean, it just the injustices were ridiculous. Right. Well, by then it's DNA is really easy to obtain. Sure. So they actually did DNA analysis on the dollar bill mm-hmm. and some one other thing. I think the carafe. Okay. The pieces of the carafe. None of it was Wesley's. Of course it wasn't. None of it was Wesley's. 
So finally, he gets a new trial, a new trial, not an exoneration, no, a no. new flipping trial. So he's got to go through it again. So 16 later, 16 years later, he's going to a new trial. The DA came to him and offered a plea deal. What? Wesley and his attorney wanted an Alfred plea. And just so people know, an Alfred plea is when you stand up in court and say, I'm not admitting guilt or innocence. What I'm saying is you have enough evidence that it makes me look guilty. That's an Alfred mm-hmm. plea. The DA said, no, we're not taking that. No. Oh. The only way that we're going to go through this deal is if you stand up in court and confess one more time. For heaven's sake. And we're going to give you, for doing that, we're going to give you 16 years for manslaughter, which happens to be exactly how much he had served. served, So he would then be able to leave jail. Right. And at that point, Wesley just wanted to be out of jail. He was just, I mean, this destroyed him. Of course it did. So Wesley took the deal. And even though there was not one single physical evidence pointed to Wes, he, he took it and he got out. He got he got out of jail in 2017 because when he got a new trial, they he was able to post bond. He had a lot of friends that posted bond for him because there were so many people that never believed it was him, including his mother, who was a principal in the Charleston school system. And she said he never left our house. He was home with me and my husband and his son. Right. Anyway, he got out of, he. so 2017, he got out. And then there was a woman who he had known since he was 10, that she went and visited him every single week and played gin rummy with him mm-hmm. every single week while he was in jail. Aww. And he actually moved in with her. Oh, good. They had become really best friends and had started to fall for each other. Nice. So he went and lived with her. So July of 2020, he finally was released on everything. Everything. Right. July of 2020, he signed the deal. Everything's good. Right. Well, Wesley Max Myers died. September 23rd, 2021. And I just want to let you know that September 23rd, 2022 was last night. It sure was. Yeah, that's crazy. I honestly believe that my daughter and I had gone to this mediumship breathwork class and you, you were very, like you become really in touch with your higher self. It's just an, an amazing experience. And I think because we were on that vibration and we were near that bar. Right. I think Teresa and Wesley both needed this story to be told. Yeah. So the, the murder was never solved. No, because they closed the case because he wow. closed the case. That's crazy. That is an amazing story. Isn't that crazy? See, at first I thought. Yeah, at first I thought that the police were like just doing a, a bad cop, good cop kind of thing trying to make him feel comfortable so he would release more information. But no, that just sounds like corruption through and through. It was so bad. So the reason that he got a new trial was because of their tactics in the interrogation. Yeah. Mainly. Um, That makes sense. They lied. They lied. They did not have an eyewitness. No. They did have an eyewitness that came to court and testified, but she had a beef with him and she was not on the list of witnesses she literally walked into court one day and during the trial and said i can put him in that bar and the judge let her get on the stand without any pre-interview from the other side it was so stupid well and shame on his attorney for not watching that his attorney did everything he tried he objected and everything attorney did everything he could his this guy was railroaded he was it's so sad yes and he died 
He died. After all of this, he finally gets out of prison to enjoy his life that he has missed so much. And he died. And he died. That's, That's so, so sad. That's such a Debbie Downer. I'm sorry. It is Too a Debbie Downer, but I've got to tell you, I believe wholeheartedly that these two people wanted this story told. No doubt about it. And it, yeah, it does not escape me that their the anniversary of his death was yesterday. Was yesterday. Yeah. And we were over randomly over walking past that bar when my daughter brought that That's up. crazy. Wes, rest in peace, buddy. And I, I really hope that he and Teresa are together forever. Oh, I'm sure they are. And they can continue to celebrate their love. Yes. So, but Anne has bread. I have bread. Can you see it? <laughs> so, can you see it, Antonio? It's gorgeous. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I it's wish beautiful. I could smell it. Oh, oh it here smells so good. Because it is, oh, it's so beautiful. I'm just going to pull a piece off. Listen, it's pull apart. So we're just going to pull some. Yeah. Because, you know, mm. oh God. So that's really I mean, good. Can you see the cinnamon and the apple? Yeah. Antonio, do you want me to get amazing. closer? Amazing. Let me just like tell I said, our I'm listeners. I'm just glad it's not pumpkin. Yeah. Um, amen to that. Oh, apple is the OG. I'm yeah. Off. I found this recipe on a website called Tastes of Lizzie Tea. Tastes of Lizzie Tea. And we'll post a link um, we'll in, our link in our show notes. Mm-hmm. And if anybody can't find it, they can always email us. Yeah. Antonio, how do people get in touch with you, buddy? Because you're an amazing guy and we adore you. Oh, thank you so much. I adore you as well. I'm so glad that we are just in that little collective and that we can keep supporting each other's shows. It's just the best. I'm so happy to have found y'all and your podcast. And I don't listen to true crime podcasts. The fact that you had me on yours to be able to share this true crime of mine and to listen to your amazing crime. Amazing opportunity. Thank you so much. You can find me on thecultworthy.com is my website where all of my reviews and blogs are, but it's also where all my links to my podcasts, as well as links to all of my podcasting friends like Sugarcoated Murder can be found as well. So find me there. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. And if anybody wants to find us, I mean, I know it's, we're not, we don't just have send the us an email. We love an email. I know we don't have the velvet voice of no. Antonio. No. Just, just send us an email anyway. Murder.sugarcoated at gmail.com. That's us. And we're on, you know, we're on Believe Network and then all these other podcast places. places. We're, the, we're, we're places. the places. So, yeah. Antonio, God bless you for coming on our show. We, we, I mean, we just adore you. We adore you. And we hope very much that you will stay, stay sweet and don't murder. <gasps> If you kill people, we will talk about you. And we won't do it in a velvety voice. We will not use a velvety voice. (laughs) No. No, we won't. All right, everyone. Have a great week. This has been Sugar Coated Murder Podcast. A deliciously (laughs) entertaining true crime podcast. Like what you heard? You can always explore past episodes by visiting sugarcoatedpod.com. Don't forget to like our Facebook fan page and share with friends. Thanks for listening to Sugar Coated Murder Podcast. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. 
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.